Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. That's where we're going to be today. We uh, have been moving slow through the book of Colossians. Um, We're just now getting out of chapter 1. We're going to speed up a little bit after this in the next few weeks, Um, but today we're just going to cover the first eight verses of Colossians chapter 2. And so let me read that for us. Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy an empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Okay, so uh, when I was a kid, maybe like fifth or sixth grade, uh, the most popular cereal in my household was a cereal called Tutti Fruities. Anybody ever heard of this cereal? Tutti Fruities. Okay, um, that's what it looks like. We ate it every day. It was fine. It was good. It was all I knew. But one day, I went over to a friend's house, and he pulls out this cereal called Fruit Loops. Oh, yeah, David says. Um, And I remember looking at it and going, huh, this is interesting. I told my friend, this looks very similar to the cereal that we eat at home. It's got the same look. It's got all the assortment of the same stuff inside the cereal. And so he pours me a bowl. I take my spoon, and I take a bite of Fruit Loops for the very first time, and instantly, I knew that I had been lied to, okay? Because what I had just tasted, Fruit Loops, was a million times better than the junk that I was eating at my house called Tutti Fruities. So I asked my friend, natural question, hey, do you mind if I take this cereal home with me? And he looked at me a little angry. There was just a little bit of cereal left. He looked at me and said, sure, Colton, that's fine. He knew what my goal was, right? And so I took that box of Fruit Loops home. I stormed through the front door, put that box of Fruit Loops on the counter. I pulled down Tutti Fruities and put it down on the counter next to the Fruit Loops. And I looked at my mom and I said, you have been lying to me my entire life. And she said, I don't care what you think. You eat what I tell you to eat. This is my house, right? Uh, But I became best friends with my friend Will just so that I could eat decent cereal as a kid. Um, But why do I tell you that story? All throughout church history, and especially in our world today, um, the Christian is surrounded by tutti-frutti versions of the gospel. From the outside, they can appear to make sense. They look the same, they have a similar appearance, but when you begin to taste it, it becomes obvious that it is not the real thing. When you put tutti-frutties to the test against Fruit Loops, they will fall short every single time, and it is the same for the gospel. 
when you taste the true gospel and you begin to test and compare that to anything else, then it becomes obvious that one is real and one is fake. So with that said, let's jump into Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to read the first three verses again. Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. And here's what he says. Here's the struggle, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So Paul says that he is struggling. I think you can also say there that he has a strong desire for or he longs for. And so what is Paul's struggle? He gives us two things. And and out of this struggle, by the way, you can begin to piece together Paul's flow of thought, his logic behind what he's saying begins to unfold. First, he says that I struggle, I desire that your hearts are encouraged. And this is important within the context of the book. As these believers in Colossae face a crisis of faith, they have people within their own congregation that are attempting to lead them away from Christ. These aren't outside voices. These are people within their own community. And Paul says, I want your heart to be encouraged. I want you to have courage. It's the word parakaleo. So say that with me. Parakaleo, okay? Um, That phrase, it means to come alongside. It means to come alongside and kaleo. Para, come alongside, and kaleo means to call. So picture a runner running a race and someone coming alongside of them and saying, hey, come on, keep going. Don't give up. Para, kaleo, I'm with you. I want you to be encouraged. I'm calling out to you. And his second struggle on their behalf is that they are knit together in love. Notice that he doesn't just say that I hope you are knit together. And he doesn't just say my hope is that uh, for you is that you love one another. He combines them in order to communicate a very specific idea. My hope for you is that you are knit together. Knit together how? In love. Because here's the deal. Real unity is not possible without love. So his desire is that they are encouraged and that they have unity. Two words that have become somewhat cliche for the church. Right? Every church will say, hey, we want to encourage one another and we want to be unified as a body. And those two ideas are much easier said than done. Right? The modern man or woman tends to be more pessimistic than they are encouraging. It's easier to tear down than it is to build up. And unity is easy when there is nothing threatening that unity, right? Both encouragement and unity are things that have to be fought for and dealt with intentionally. So C.S. Lewis says in his book, Mere Christianity, he says about forgiveness, and I think the principle remains the same for the idea of unity. About forgiveness, he says, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Once we've been wronged, by somebody else, we want to hold on to that. We want to feed that feeling. We treat it like our pet because it makes us feel better to hold on to something, to hold on to something as precious as forgiveness, as over somebody else. Forgiveness costs you something. When you've been wronged, you are absorbing the pain that lingers in that wrong. And through forgiveness, there is a moment of both pain and freedom. It hurts to let it go, but it also brings me freedom to surrender that to the Lord. I think that also applies to unity. Everyone loves the idea of unity 
until it actually costs you something to be unified. So here's the question, Colossae, church in Colossae, will you be humble and gracious with one another? Will you take the time to discover the truth of Christ together? Will you do that in love? Will you actively engage in conversation to identify where you are divided and look to the scriptures to find how God can reconcile things to himself in truth? But Colossae, if you can fight and strive for a culture of encouragement and unity in Christ, then what he says next makes a lot more sense. He says, if, if God has established a culture of encouragement and unity, then the practice of reaching full assurance, understanding, and knowledge, and what Paul calls the mystery, becomes the normal part of the fellowship. And he says, this mystery is Christ. So remember what he said last week about this mystery. He said, God has given me a task, Paul, to go to the Gentiles, and what has God told him to tell the Gentiles? Colossians 1.27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. So the mystery is that Christ has reconciled you to himself through the cross. Colossians 1.20. He has made peace by his blood. And because of what Christ has done, there are riches to be had. Not gold and silver, but the riches are himself. You get him. And so his struggle is that they would have full assurance of this mystery. That they would know without a doubt in their minds what they have in Christ. That they would know that all the knowledge that they seek can be found in Christ. That the fullness of understanding is found in Christ. Which is why he says in verse 3, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You have everything you need, church, in Christ. But then he's going to give a warning in verse 4. He says, I say this, I say all these things, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Okay, there are two words that I want to focus in on here. The first word is delude. Another way to say that is to be fooled. So Paul says, I say this in order that no one may fool you. And then our second word is plausible. Um, this is such an important statement from Paul. And it's, it's an important statement because it was true for the church in Colossae, and it's true for us today. The reality is, you aren't going to be led away from Christ through crazy. Let me say that again. You aren't going to be led away from Christ through crazy. So if someone comes into your home group, and they start talking about how they believe that Jesus is really a secret unicorn, and because he's a secret unicorn, then that means that we all need to be worshiping unicorns. We need to get unicorn tattoos, and we need to start wearing unicorn necklaces, and we need to start singing about the almighty unicorn. What are you going to say to that? No, thank you. Right? Your three-year-old might be fooled, but you're not going to be fooled. Right? But it's when an argument sounds plausible, when it looks similar, when it feels similar on the outside, it's plausible. It's believable. That's when it's dangerous. So we don't know exactly what the plausible argument was in Colossae, but we do know that it was at least centered on the identity of Jesus and the pursuit of knowledge. That's Paul's focus and intention in this book, that his focus and intention is to highlight the fullness of Christ, that he was 
and is God, that he was before all things. Over and over, he uses this high language of Christology, and it makes it appear that there were people claiming that in order to find the fullness of all knowledge, that you needed to go outside of Christ, which led to some kind of syncretism in the church. And in our world today, we have plausible arguments that attempt to delude us and weaken the truth of the gospel all around us. Typically, these sorts of arguments are filled with all kinds of proof text. So by proof text, I mean they take a few scriptures out of the Bible and they present them as if they stand on their own while completely ignoring the rest of scripture and even their immediate context within the scripture. So here's what I want to do for the next few minutes. For the next few minutes, I want to talk about some of the plausible arguments that exist within our culture, within our context. I don't have time to talk about them all. So it's possible, it's possible that I will fail to mention one that you believe is of the utmost importance. And just because I don't mention it, that does not mean that it is not important. I want to make that clear. Honestly, there, as I thought about this, there are just so many. <laughs> there are so many that we could spend weeks just talking about this, right? And I've only got a few minutes. You, only, you have a short attention span, right? Um, and so we're just going to talk about a few, but I specifically want to talk about arguments that have an impact on our body, things that we're actually going to face, right? Remember, this plausible argument in Colossae was coming from within the church, and there are many plausible arguments that are helpful to know about, right? But in reality, some of the things that we like to talk about on social media, or you'll see them talked about on blogs or your favorite YouTuber or podcaster, many of those things you're never actually going to face. Helpful to know, and you should know them. But what are we going to face here? So I'm only going to focus on plausible arguments that we might actually encounter so that we can be aware of what's actually around us. And as we go through these, my expectation my expectation is that some of, in, some of us in this room, maybe without even realizing it, might say, well, I believe that. I, I kind of agree with that. And so I want to say this before we jump in. If you hear me say, this is a plausible argument that has deluded you, that has fooled you, then I want you to know that I am not pointing these things out to condemn you. My aim in pointing these things, these things out is not to run you off or to single you out because you believe this. Just like Paul is doing with these believers, I want to encourage you with the truth of Christ. I want to ensure that we are a community that is knit together in love. My hope is that this is the beginning point to a dialogue about the truth of the gospel. But the goal is that, one, that I want to make you aware that maybe some of the things that you believe may not be as true as you think they are. And my second goal in highlighting these different plausible arguments is that we as a church would be willing to sit down in humility at the table with a commitment to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us in his word what the truth is. So my plea to you is, one, fight every bone in your body that wants to make you defensive, okay? And two, that we would all say, and I would hope that all believers would be willing to do this, we would all say, I am willing to put what I believe on the table to be examined, by both the scriptures and my fellow brothers and sisters. If you're confident in what you believe, examine it. Test it against the scriptures to see if it's true. And the last thing I would say is that God would grant us a spirit of grace in how we talk to one another because this world has lost the art of conversation and how to talk with one another. That as we go throughout these conversations, that we would learn what it means to have a conversation 
about what we believe in grace with a commitment, not to our position, but to the truth. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, one more thing before we jump in. I want to give us a foundation, okay? We need a lens to look through if we are going to properly, properly evaluate these plausible arguments. And this lens is not exhaustive. It is simply a starting point for evaluation. And this is also assuming that we are all starting from the understanding that we want to be in unity with the scriptures. And by using the scriptures, here's our lens. If we can, as believers, first and foremost, have an understanding of what's called the doctrine of imputation, okay? If we can understand the doctrine of imputation, then I think we would greatly minimize, if not completely eliminate, the possibility of being fooled by plausible arguments. So let me explain what the doctrine of imputation is. So if we can wrap our minds around the reality that the sin of Adam lives in us. So it's not just that we sin. It's not just that we choose to sin, but it's that we are sinners. It's not that we chose to sin in our flesh, but rather we have a nature of sin. And as Paul says, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and therefore we are incapable of earning favor and mercy of God. And so the doctrine of imputation teaches that on the cross, two things happened simultaneously. One, on the cross, Christ imputed, he transferred our sin to himself. Our sin was removed and it was placed on him. Our sin is gone. He took it. It's no more. And two, he also imputed, transferred his righteousness to us. So not only has Christ taken away our sin, but he has also given to us his righteousness. How amazing is that? And now we're no longer dead in our sins, but we are alive in Christ. Therefore, we're reconciled to God. He made peace by his blood, and we had nothing to do with that. It wasn't because of our works. We didn't earn it. We didn't earn some kind of quota in order to receive anything from Jesus. God did it. He's the one who is glorified and exalted. And the reason I say that the doctrine of imputation is a good lens for us to use to examine plausible arguments is because typically these arguments will expose two realities. First, they will attempt to minimize the cross of Christ. So anytime you hear an argument from a I hope you examine what I say and you evaluate it like this. If you hear an argument from a preacher, a friend, someone on YouTube, whatever, the, question, the first question you have to ask is, what role does the cross of Christ play in that? What role does the cross of Christ play in that? And the second thing these plausible arguments will do is they will attempt to elevate, magnify, glorify, exalt someone other than Christ. So the second question we have to ask is, who is elevated in this argument? And if anyone is glorified, elevated, exalted, equal to or above Christ, then we can know that it is a deluded argument intended to fool you. So what role does the cross of Christ play and who is exalted? That's our two questions. So let's jump into some plausible arguments. Okay, first, let me mention two that we have already talked about. We talked about these in our first week in the series. The first plausible argument um, that's rather common in our culture is the prosperity gospel. Perhaps you've also heard of this as um, by the name of the name it and claim it gospel. So the prosperity gospel, specifically in America, really began to explode through the teachings of someone named Oral Roberts. He was a televangelist that preached for many years. He even funded or founded a university called Oral Roberts 
University. He would often link financial success with divine favor. So Roberts devised what is famously known as um, a, what's called a blessing pact, okay? A blessing pact. The idea was the more one gave money to Roberts, the more one would reap God's financial reward. And here's the plausible argument with the prosperity gospel. Here's what you may hear. So here's not what I'm teaching. I'm showing you how it's plausible. I want to make that clear so no heresy is clipped, okay? Um, here's the, plus, the plausible argument with the prosperity gospel. In the scriptures, God has promised you health and wealth. It is the divine right of all believers that you receive physical blessing from God since you are a part of God's people. Listen, God does not want you. God does not want you to suffer and toil. God wants you to be the best that you can be in this life, to live your best life right now. I mean, after all, God is a God of love and blessing, right? And listen, if you have suffering, poverty, or pain, you need to know that it is not God's plan for your life. That is not God's plan for your life. Sounds good, doesn't it? So you need to go to God in faith and name the blessing that you want and claim it as your own because you know what? It is already yours. You just have to have enough faith to receive it. Now, granted, most of us aren't followers of the prosperity gospel in the way that I just described it. But where it does begin to creep into our lives and it becomes plausible for us is when we say things like, which I have been guilty of, when we say things like, well, I have been a Christian all of my life. I don't know why God would do this to me. Have I ever said that? Or we say, I go to church every Sunday. I give X amount of dollars. So I don't know why God would not give me this blessing, money, finances, health, whatever, the job I want. We treat God like a vending machine sometimes. I put this thing in. I put my faith in. I put my, my time in. I put my money in. I give God my devotion and now I expect that he will give me back this blessing. So let's evaluate that argument through our lens. Where does the cross of Christ fit into that? Where do the sufferings of Christ fit in? It doesn't. It doesn't fit. Jesus said the Son of Man is going to suffer and die, and you, will you deny yourself? Will you take up your cross and follow me? And second, who's elevated in this argument? Who's elevated? Jesus or us? Our second plausible argument is the plausible argument of individualism. So individualism says, says that each of us in our own way have our own truth, and that truth is defined and determined by no one other than ourselves. So if you've heard before, my truth is my truth, your truth is your truth. And this argument goes on. It says it doesn't really matter if we disagree because in the end, God is going to complete our own journeys. At the end of the day, this argument is rejection of absolute truth, which comes from God and is the elevation of what I desire. What do I want? Here's how the argument is plausible. God has a plan for your life, and he has you on your own journey, right? And if anyone disagrees with how you live your life, you don't need to worry about that. That's not your problem. That's their problem. You don't need to worry about them. You just need to trust that God is taking you where he wants you to go. And listen, he's wired you in a certain way. He's given you certain desires. So you need to press into those because God has given you those for a reason, 
right? That must be what God wants for you. And this is where you see people begin to embrace the practice of things like homosexuality, that God has given me these desires. Those can't be there for, by accident. It's not a big deal that I'm sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend. We're married in God's eyes after all. I love her. And we begin to delude ourselves. We, we begin to think that it's just about what I want, that God has given me the specific thing, the specific feeling for a reason. And so here's the question that I would ask. Where's the cross of Christ in that? Who's elevated? Who's exalted? Christ or self? The third plausible argument is the argument that happiness is the end goal in life. And this argument tends to pull on these innate ideas that we have as human beings, right? We, we all want security. We all want belonging. And we all have a desire to be understood. We all want to feel safe, to feel like we are protected in some way. We all want to feel like we belong that we are a part of something, that we are welcomed and accepted by those around us, and we all want to feel understood. And so what happens is we attach ourselves to whomever offers us a safe place, whomever tells us that we belong, whomever accepts us, who, who makes us feel like we are understood. So, so when I believe that God's aim for my life is where I feel most happy, then we will compromise on the call of God to surrender every aspect of our lives. Divorce makes sense. Well, I'm unhappy in my marriage. I, I, I think it's okay that I get divorced because surely God doesn't want me to be unhappy. Or for those of you who are single, right? You will compromise who you date. They make you feel good. They make you feel safe. They make you feel wanted. Ah, it's not a big deal if they don't go to church. It's not a big deal if they don't talk about Jesus much, right? They really want to be with me, though. They understand me. They accept me. They know me, and so you compromise. Again, where is the cross of Christ in this argument? And who is elevated? Fourth, the, the fourth plausible argument is the argument of Christian moralism. And I'm convinced, this is my opinion, by the way, I want to make that clear, but I'm convinced that this is perhaps the most prominent false teaching in our church today. But the plausible argument of Christian moralism says that our big problem is the act of sinning, as opposed to the reality that the Bible speaks directly about our sin nature. So my issue, your issue, is that you sin. And so in order to be a Christian, you just need to stop sinning. And the purpose in this argument of the death of Christ is to give us a second chance so that we can be better people. And in the end, redemption comes through, if we're honest, my effort to get rid of any sin in my life. And if I do have any kind of struggles, then that is evidence, perhaps, that maybe I'm not a Christian, right? It's plausible because it speaks to God's desire for us to follow him in obedience and holiness, holiness. and it reflects what we largely believe as a culture, that if you want to be rewarded, then you have to be good. If you do good things, you will receive good things. But the reality is you will never white-knuckle yourself to holiness. In your own power and effort, you will fall short. And yeah, God does desire for you to be moral. He does desire for you to be holy. But if being moral was the end goal of our faith, then how do we explain the Bible being written by men like Paul, who had a thorn in his flesh that God never took away? Or men like Moses, who's guilty of murder? Or David, who is guilty of adultery? It's a misunderstanding of what Christ really accomplished on the cross, that I am incapable of ridding myself of sin. 
And it is an act of grace that saves me, not my moral efforts. That the end goal of our faith, by the way, is not that we don't drink that, don't smoke that, don't touch that. The end goal of our faith is the glory of Christ in light of his grace. And if the glory of Christ is what we live for, then walking in his grace, being holy, is so much sweeter than anything else. In that place, we strive for holiness. We will not be perfect, but we will see evidence of growth, evidence of sanctification. But it's not my effort, and it's not, my, um, it's not what I do that saved me. It is only through the grace of Christ that I can fight the temptation that I face every single day. Day. So remember the lens. Who is exalted in this argument? The work of Christ or our moral efforts, right? Lastly, last one, there is the argument that God loves you and he would never judge you. This is also uh, can be known as what's called universalism. The central idea of this argument is that God is a God of love. He is not a God of wrath or judgment. And that in the end, Christ will save every single person because he is love. This argument is plausible because it is difficult for us to understand that our God would actually do something like send a person to eternal condemnation. We want to believe. I think it's okay to admit this. This is okay. We want to believe that in the end, it's all going to work out. Yes, I've made some mistakes, but you know what? Jesus is love, and so surely he would not express judgment on me. And in order to justify this doctrine, one has to completely ignore or discount much of the scriptures, including many of the teachings of Jesus, about hell and eternal condemnation. It's plausible, but in the end, it's just not true. Yes, you better believe God does love you, but he cannot compromise who he is. He cannot just say, oh, well, it's not a big deal that you sinned, that he is holy. And at the end of all things, he will either say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant, or he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. There are many plausible false gospels, false uh, arguments in our culture. And there will be more that will pop up in the years to come, right? And this is why Paul says in verse 8, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive. Now, that's an interesting word, captive. That word captive, it was commonly used to describe a ship being hijacked and all of its goods being plundered. It's the word suligagio. Say that with me. Suligagio. Try it again. Suligagio. Perfect. Um, it's the idea that, man, my, man, someone has hijacked my ship and they're coming and they're stealing everything that I have and taking it for themselves. And so Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive, that no one steals and takes away everything that you have, and he says, by philosophy. So, let's be clear here. This isn't philosophy in the way that we think about philosophy. Paul is not anti-philosophy. He will use philosophy all over his letters. Um, there are many believe who believe, and I agree with them, that when Paul uses the word philosophy here, he is directly addressing the ringleaders of those he is opposing in Colossae. The belief is that when they talked about finding fullness outside of Christ, they referred to that idea as the philosophy. And the reason I think that is correct is because it's pretty obvious that Paul is using specific words that echo the words that the false teachers are using. When Paul speaks of words like filling and fullness, I think he's echoing the jargon of the false teachers, and he, I think he's doing the same here. And, and that's what most people, most scholars believe. So the prominent belief is that this is a jab at the false teachers in Colossae who called what they believed 
the philosophy. So he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. And then he says, empty deceit. Empty deceit. Let's think about this. Plausible arguments that delude us and lead us away from the truth of the gospel have at their root empty deceit. It sounds right, but they are promising something that cannot be delivered. This philosophy is promising that you can find fullness outside of Christ, but it cannot be delivered. That is an empty deceit. And, and, and that's what you'll find with all of the plausible arguments that I just mentioned or any others that are out there, right? That these things that try to pull us away from Christ, if you follow it to its end conclusion, you will find that what it promises cannot be delivered. It is deceitful and it is empty. So he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And he says, according to human tradition. That word tradition is used only two other times in the New Testament, once in Mark and once in Peter. In Mark 7, 9, Jesus tells the Pharisees, hey, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Here's the basic idea that both Jesus and Paul are communicating. What is being taught here is of human origin. It's not from God. It's not from the Holy Spirit. It's of human origin. So don't be taken captive. Don't have your ship plundered by this philosophy that is deceitful and it's empty. It cannot deliver on its promises and it does not come from God. It's made by man. And then he says, it is according to the elemental spirits of the world. And that phrase speaks to the spiritual battle that is happening even right now at this very moment. And I'm always a little bit careful when I talk about things like demonic influences or spiritual warfare. Because in our culture, we just don't have a framework for the implications of those things. We tend to meet those sorts of ideas with skepticism, even though the Bible will talk about their existence over and over. C.S. Lewis would say, that, say of the demonic that there are two great errors when it comes to the understanding of the demonic and spiritual warfare. The first error, he says, that we make is that we pay too much attention to its reality. It's when we begin to think that everything bad that is happening is happening because of the devil. So you wake up 2 a.m., you're walking to the bathroom and you stub your toe. And then immediately you say, get behind me, Satan. Maybe you just weren't paying attention to where you were walking, right? So error one is, is that we pay too much attention. We think that the devil is behind every bush and every corner. And so we've got holy, a vial of holy water in our pocket just ready, right? To get rid of the devil everywhere. That's error number one. Um, error number two that C.S. Lewis says, is that we would not pay attention to the existence of the spiritual world at all. That we would pretend that it just doesn't exist. If there is an issue at all, it can always be explained medically, through our mental understanding, through our mental health, or just by plain, pure logic. If you've never read the screw tape letters, I implore you to read it. And so what Paul is suggesting here is that these, plaus these plausible false arguments that are not of Christ, they are empty and deceitful. They find their origins from man and that it finds its momentum and fuel through forces that are opposed to the purposes of God. 
He's saying this philosophy is built on. It is according to the elemental spirits of the world. We have to wrap our minds around that. The drive behind this false teaching is according to the demonic who aims to delude, who aims to fool the believers in Colossae. Who are we to think that the elemental spirits of the world have changed their game plan in 2024? Paul says all of this is being done outside of Christ. And so here's the question that we have to ask. How do we combat this as the church? Like, how do we move forward in confidence as the people of God? How, how, honestly, how do we identify? There's so many things out there. How do we identify what is true and what is false? Well, look back at verse 2. Paul has already told us. Remember Paul's struggle for these believers. He says, I want you to have to be encouraged. Para kaleo. I'm coming alongside you. I am with you in this. I am calling to you to keep going. And if we want to run this race together in the truth of the gospel, then we have to para kaleo with one another. Right? We have to come alongside one another and call out to each other. Listen, I'm with you. I haven't left you. I will walk with you in this. I'm calling out to you, don't give up. And remember, what did he say next? I struggle for you that you are knit together in love. If you want to identify the plausible arguments, the things that are not of Christ, then you cannot do it alone. You need a community, a faith community that says, I am knit together with you, that we as a body have unity that is built on Christ. My sorrows are your sorrows. And when you doubt, I don't give up on you. When you struggle, I don't leave you to rot. Your joys are my joys. And then what does he say? That you might reach full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Okay, so follow me here. So ambiguity about Jesus, which ambiguity means to be open to interpretation. So ambiguity about Jesus will lead our church to anxiety. Assurance about Jesus will lead us to confidence and courage. If we want to have full assurance, then we cannot build a church, a a people, on ambiguity. We reach full assurance when we commit commit ourselves and tether ourselves to Christ and nothing else. We can't have an open interpretation for the gospel where it shifts in definition and implication, implication ambiguity would be, well, listen, you need Jesus, but man, these other things would, like, maybe this is the gospel. You need Jesus plus something else. But if we want full assurance of understanding, we have to take seriously the last two words of verse 2, which is Christ. This is why we gather on Sundays and in home groups. Hopefully you're forming individual relationships where through the power of the Holy Spirit, with the gift of his word, we are together pressing into the truth of Christ. And we are clear about who Jesus is. If we are ambiguous or unclear about who Jesus is, then that is going to open us up to believe plausible false arguments. But if we can commit to encourage, to be knit together as people who strive to exalt Christ, then that is going to lead to assurance, knowledge, and understanding. Like verse four says, we will discover the hidden treasures of wisdom that are found in Christ. The struggle that Paul has is the same desire that you have and that I have. We all want an encouraging, loving, assuring, confident community. We all want to belong somewhere like that. 
We all want that. And that is found when we are clear about Christ. When we are clear about who he is. The minute we drift away from Jesus, we will lose all of those things. We will become a discouraging, unloving, unsure, and misinformed people. You don't grow outside of Christ. You grow in Christ. You don't find unity, real unity outside of Christ. You find unity in Christ. Now, you might hear this and go, yeah, Colton, I'm in, bro. I'm in. Like, that sounds good. But the real question is, okay, how do we do it, though? Like, practically, it sounds nice, but how do we do it? Look at verse 6. Paul says, therefore, as you received, I love this, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught. So a few months ago, I went to my brother-in-law's house and they had just put up a basketball hoop. And look, I love basketball. Not that good, right? Played in high school. Throughout my 20s, I played pickup games probably twice a week. But when I hit 30, I got lazy, Okay. Uh, And so I started playing basketball with my nieces and nephews, and it took about five minutes before I was like, guys, listen, child, I need a break, okay? I'm exhausted. And I realized that I was the most out of shape I have ever been in my life. So what do you think I did? I joined a gym, okay? I joined a gym. The first few weeks, y'all, I was killing it. I was killing it. I I was going almost every day. It was tough, but I was excited to go. I enjoyed the challenge. I liked how it made me feel. But over the last couple of weeks, it's been a struggle. I've gotten into this routine, okay, where I have to like break down every step from like my house to the gym. Step one, put on shorts. Step two, put on a shirt. Step three, put on shoes. Step four, walk to the door. Step five, go to, just go on and on and on, all the way until I get to the gym. Step 30, walk into the gym. Okay, I'm there, right? Um... Now, I'll come back to that. What I love about verse 6 is that Paul says, as you received him. Do you remember what it was like when you received Christ? Or that time when you first understood just who he is? Do you remember that? Man, for those of you who do, how sweet was that moment? How good was it? Look at what Paul says. As you received him, so walk in him. The same God who saved you is the same God who is with you right now. There will be days when you will be so excited about Jesus. It will feel like you're not only walking with him, but you are running with him. You are digging into his word. You are praying. You are encouraging, right? You are so excited about Jesus. But then there will be days when walking with him means you have to take it step by step. Life is busy. Circumstances are difficult. Whatever the reason, and in those moments, walking with Jesus will be one step at a time. Okay, now I'm going to get dressed. Now I'm going to grab my Bible. Now I'm going to find a place to sit. Now I'm going to lay my Bible down. Now I'm going to read my Bible. Step by step. And you will ask the Holy Spirit every day, to lead you through those steps. God, I received you. You imputed my sin to yourself and you imputed to me 
righteousness. So God, give me the desire to walk in you. And the promise is, as we walk in him, that we are rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. That as you walk in him, you position yourself to be assured in him, to have knowledge and understanding with his wisdom that every day the roots of God's grace will grow around you. Picture the roots of God's grace coming up from the ground and wrapping around you that he establishes you in him. And so when the plausible arguments come, and they will come, you are able to say with confidence, you look around at the roots holding on to you and you say, no, I know that's not true. Look, I'm rooted in Christ. I'm rooted in him. Don't you see? You can't pull me away. Um, so during the time of Jesus, you would have seen this statue of Caesar Augustus in Rome. This statue. I know, it's kind of weird. I'll explain. Um, the idea behind the statue is that it portrays something to the people. His breastplate tells a story, okay? Um, it tells a story. It t- talks about war and victory in Rome that would lead to peace. This peace was known as the Pax Romana. And then if you look down to your left at the right leg of Augustus, you see a baby riding a dolphin. Yes, I know. Um, the dolphin became a symbol of Augustus's great naval victory over Mark Antony and Cleopatra at the Battle of Actium in 31 BC. It was a conquest that made Augustus the sole ruler of the empire. That baby is Cupid. He's there to communicate the idea that Augustus is descended from the gods. Caesar is divine. He's got the approval of the gods. So if you're in Rome, you could look at this statue of Caesar Augustus, and you could be assured, you could be assured that if you submit to Lord Caesar, you will have peace. He's had victory. You will be assured the gods are with you because the gods are with Caesar. You've got the protection. You've got the favor of the gods. It was a plausible argument for the people during the time of Jesus, but it just wasn't true. And it begs the question, Who are what in our world? What statues are out there that are gazing for your attention? Listen to what Jesus would tell his disciples in the midst of a world with this statue of Caesar. And we'll close here. This is what Jesus says to his disciples and to us. John 15, 5. Remember the idea. Be in the protection of Caesar. Submit to him. Jesus says in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. He says, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then look what he says in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy 
maybe full. Remain in me. What do you run to? What do you abide in? Christ or a plausible argument that cannot deliver on what it promises? 